We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. I want to be sensitive to this very, um, it's a hard subject. So I, you know, I definitely want to be sensitive to anything. And if I ask a wrong question, you just steer me in the right way. And we'll be happy to redirect anything that that comes about that I'm like, oh gosh, that's off limits. So yeah, no, absolutely. And like I said, for, I don't, I can't imagine anything that would be off limits. So you know, definitely do feel free to ask. You know, what what you may consider a hard question or whatever. Fortunately, too, I'm uh, 16, 17 months on the other side of this, and so uh, you know, things we're we're in a really good place too. So I want to share the you know the good, bad, and the ugly, not not candy coat it. You know. As, as well, just, you know, so that, so that people, like you said, get the real glimpse of, you know, what really happens as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would love for you to introduce you, your family, and um, maybe part of the introduction to the childhood cancer uh, part of your life. Yeah, a- absolutely. So my name is Neil Lloyd. Um, I have been married for 11 years to my wife, Leah. We've actually known each other for 20 plus years through mutual friends um, we, you know, went to the same high school. She's a little bit younger and, and all that. So we uh, started dating, I think, 14 years ago. We got married 11 years ago. And then we started working on having our family with our oldest son, Gavin. He was born May 7th of 2012. And so he is nine today going into fourth grade. And then two and a half years later, we completed our family with our youngest son, Connor, who was born November 25th of 2014. And so he is six today um, and he'll be going into first grade. And Connor is our son that, you know, we'll probably be talking to today. Obviously we'll, we'll touch on Gavin as well because it truly is, this experience was a true full family situation, even though obviously Connor had the um, brunt of it, you know, with the diagnosis and the treatment and such. And so, you know, we, we established that Connor's six or six and a half today. Um, Connor was diagnosed with ALL leukemia or acute lymphoblastic lymph- lymphocyte, I think, <laughs> leukemia or ALL for short, um, on December 11th of 2017. So that was just a few weeks after his third birthday. And it, you know, just totally, you know, caught us off guard because we, he was healthy and ate well and you know primarily organic you know we, we try to be mindful of his diet and all that stuff and so you know we didn't have any health situations or concerns or anything like that going into it and so it's a complete shock wow okay so he yeah here it's right after his birthday and here y'all are receiving some news how what made you concerned or what made you think to take him to the doctor or kind of start us in that piece of of because I mean, because as a mom, you just take your kids to the doctor for things that you, you know, are typical and normal. And then it's like, whoa, here's, here's some extra on top of that, uh, yeah. that you thought you were going in for. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of really to set the stage too. So again, you know, December 11th, 2017 is that day that, you know, really changed our lives and, you know, a day that we will never forget. 
and again to set the stage so we threw him a big birthday party uh you know november 25th so about three weeks prior um you know i think it was on his birthday or a day before or after you know just shifting for the weekend um on on that time of his birthday you know we had 20 or 30 friends you know from friends and family to you know some kids from his class and had you saw him that day i mean we still look back at those pictures and you know from his birthday and then the preceding you know a few weeks before and still to this day you know we didn't really see anything you know in, in those pictures or you know looking back anything of any significance that you know made us feel you know that we saw it coming or even we could reverse engineer it in hindsight so i guess it really started to show signs or manifest about a week prior um so connor we had identified that he needed some uh, dental work done you know he, he had a few cavities and such and we had looked around the city, you know, working with various uh, children's pediatric dentists. Um, and we finally found one because it's, it's a lot more challenging than you would think, especially for a three-year-old without putting them into full surgery, you know, anesthesia and all that. And so we were looking to hopefully just one cheaper to do it, you know, uh, uh, in the office, you know, not being put under is a full surgery. And so we started working with a dentist um, that day. They numbed his teeth. Um, and, and gave him like a, uh, like a the, the laughing gas or whatever so they could do the work. It wasn't super successful, so it's kind of a pain. His age was starting to show, and so they thought, okay, we're going to probably have to do this, um, you know, through the anesthesia. And so, you know, we were kind of bummed about that. And so through that process of doing that, um, they made his numb really numb, and he really kind of chewed up his, his lip and all that. And so... Um, you know, he had, he had like just, he was all swollen and, and all that. And so, you know, that we just thought like some complications and we thought he was really cranky from that. You know, he was, he was swollen and he bit his lip really bad. So it swole. And so he just wasn't, wasn't acting right that week. I think that was on a Tuesday. Then fast forward to the weekend. We were really busy that weekend. I think we had um, two different birthday parties with friends and we'd also gone to Chick-fil-A for like dinner and let them play on the park. So we were super active. I tell you all this because we started seeing um, like like signs like he had these like bruising like marks on his neck, which we later found out were called petechiae. And also, though, I think our kids that weekend had gotten some new swords. And so, you know, two boys and beating on each other and wrestling around, you know, you don't really think anything of it. And so he was a little bit cranky. Um, he had the petechiae or the marks on his neck, which, you know, look like hickeys, if you think about from, you know, traditional that. Or could have been just being hit, you know, or bruises and things like that. He also had bruises on his legs, but again, he'd been at two birthday parties and moon bounces and run around and falling and all that. And then also during that week was where I think we had an 80 degree uh, day of weather followed by like 20 degrees the next day and 50, you know, it was just that crazy schizophrenic Oklahoma weather. And so as a result of that, he had a, some slight red tinge to his snot. You know, he kind of had a snotty nose, you know, on top of his swelling mouth. And so just just was not having a good day in general. And again, we could see a slight red tinge to his snot when he blow his nose. And so we thought, again, you know, it could happen to any of us with 80 degrees one day, 20 to the next, you know, just that kind of weather. And so we didn't really think anything of it. You know, going into the weekend, we weren't, you know, at best, you know, mood with him but we just still didn't think anything of it then that sunday nights where we realized that there was a bigger problem where our family was at dinner at chili's which is typically the boys favorite they eat well there they have those stupid little uh video game tablets that they fight over because they only give you one and so we always are talking into two 
Um, we actually got the second tablet, which is sometimes a miracle at Chili's. Um, and Connor would, wasn't even interested at all in touching that. So we're like, okay, this isn't good. And so he comes over and he sits next to me. Um, he's laying on my lap. I had jeans on and I could feel his heat radiating through my jeans. And so I, I could touch his cheek. And at that point, I realized that he had a pretty decent temperature. You know, I think later that night we found out it was like 101 or something like that. So we're like, okay, well, he'll obviously be going to the pediatrician in the morning. So we let my mom know who is his, who is and was his caretaker during the day. So my mom did the daycare while my mom, wife and I worked. And so she's like, well, so she's like, well, we'll obviously be taking him to our pediatrician. I um, mean, and that, that's pretty normal because, you know, with her being his caretaker, our pediatrician was literally two blocks from her house. And so many a times my mom had ran our boys up to the pediatrician in my wife or I's absence you know, for whether, you know, well checks or for little, you know, sniffles and coughs and things like that. My mom was just awesome and would just keep things going so my wife and I could focus on work. So that next morning, Connor wakes up so that now it's Monday morning, you know, typical Monday. And my mom gets a appointment immediately. She even called, I think got in there by like 8.30. By this point, Connor's also complaining of um, his throat hurting. And so we're like, cool, this is easy um with him having a, a temperature and a sore throat you know we all three of us were like okay this is gonna be strep throat we're gonna get antibiotics and cool you know we'll we'll uh we'll, we'll it'll be end of, end of it you know and we'll be back at it you know in three to five days when the antibiotics kick in we've been here before and so we go in and this is also december this is like i think our first year in five years where we hadn't hit our deductible between having our babies or having ear tubes or this or that you know so we um had hardly uh, done anything i think we were like only a tenth of the way into our deductible and max out of pocket the doctors like you know so we're showing all this other stuff to hopefully conserve and maybe not do it and so we showed the doctor you know his his temperature was apparent um his talk, talked about the sore throat, talked about the mucus, and then we showed him the um, the uh, the uh, petechiae in his neck, and also showed him all the bruising on his legs. And at that point, that's where the doctor's like, "I'm not, I don't want to freak you out." And he's only talking to my mom at the time, who I've also forgot to mention is a, a nurse. At this point, my mom is still a, a working nurse on labor and delivery, so she's you know used to dealing with kids, you know, nursing and grandma. He's like, I don't want to freak you out. He's like, but all these things put together are sign, potential signs of leukemia. He's like, so I could run blood work here in the office, but it will take two to three days. He's like, I don't necessarily think that's what it is. He's like, but I get the, uh, the pediatrician's like, I get the impression that if I send you to the ER to do immediate blood work, that I'm not going to, you know, financially devastate your family. And, and he's like, if it was me, and since I get the impression that your family has the means to handle this, I would want to know to rule this out. He's like, because I am slightly concerned. He's like, it very well could be nothing, but I'd rather be wrong. Um, and so, you know, I this is my suggestion, but if you're not okay with that, then I can do the blood work and I'll take us two to three days. So my mom leaves the appointment and, you know, the offer stood that if we wanted to go right back and just him do the blood work to do that. And so my mom calls my wife and I, my wife is heading um, to lunch, because uh, this is now about 11 o'clock or 10.30. She was planning on going to lunch to get her nails done actually, you know, over by work. And I was planning on meeting a friend for lunch. Um, and so 
we're walking out and we, we jump on a three-way call and we're like, well, if the doctor suggests him to go to the ER, we should probably go. And at first my mom and my wife were just going to go because I'd kind of made that commitment to my friend. But my fear was that what if, you know, they were given some bad information or something like that. I didn't want to my wife and my mom to be there by themselves for that. And so we talked a lot. My mom's um, theory was that he probably, because of the um, open sore on his lip from chewing that and just being at those moon bounces and stuff, my mom was like, I bet he's got like some kind of bloodborne infection, you know, it's kind of taking his body down. And so she's like, I bet he'll get admitted. We'll probably, you know, get some a round of IV antibiotics, you know, we'll get him there. And so we decide to uh, collectively, all three of us, we met up at the ER. Um, this is in the middle of flu season. And so we immediately go in. The The doctors and the uh, the PA or, or whoever we met with, um, they kind of did a triage and they told us to go kind of hang out and like wait down the hall because it was flu season. And they had just tons of really sick people in the ER. And they're like, we're going to get a, a room together real quick, but we'll, we'll text you or we'll find you. We don't want you sitting in this uh, lobby right now because if this is something more serious, you know, flu on top of that is just going to compound that. So please stay away. They gave us masks um, and we kind of just hung out down the hall and then they quickly got us a room together. And then it probably, they started an IV, which is pretty tra tra uh, traumatic at the point. Uh, he was obviously not super happy about it. wasn't feeling well and IVs just in general aren't any good. And so they did that. Um, they, they, the doctors at that point looked pretty concerned. Um, you could just tell that, you know, it wasn't right. They told them it would be about an hour that they were, they pulled a lot of blood quickly, fast tracked the labs so they could, you know, do the research on it and, and analyze it. And um, within an hour, they came back in and um, yeah, the, the nurse came in, or I'm sorry, the doctor comes in and she's like, I'm not qualified or I don't have the authority to tell you that it's going to be leukemia. She's like, but it's going to be leukemia. I don't remember any of the numbers or anything, but she's like his, I think it was white blood count was, you know, multi, multi-fold over um, there. And he's like, so um, oncology, we're going to be discharging you from the ER. We're going to immediately move you up to the um, the 10th floor where the, uh, the, I think 10 West where the pediatric oncology unit is. And um, you'll, you'll, you'll discharge from here and you'll get transferred straight up. And at that point, an oncologist will meet with you and then they'll go over the details of, you know, what it is you know, what, what's your next steps, et cetera. But, uh, you know, like I said, they are going to confirm what I've told you that it is. And then it gets into subtypes of leukemia and such. She's like, I just, I don't have the authorization. In the meantime, the lab will do additional, you know, testing and stuff to try to give, you know, the doctors up there on 10 more information, but you know, that, that that's what it is. And so I think we sat in the ER another, probably another 30 minutes to an hour. And at that point we got transferred up yeah, then met met the team. Uh, the our doctor had stayed late to uh, intake us because now at this point, by the time I got up there, it's probably late, uh, probably late afternoon, early evening. You know, I don't really remember the details of that. And so then they came in and, and they just started kind of explaining, you know, what what our next steps were and, and all that. That's a lot. I mean, that's a lot in just like one afternoon. You you think you're going in for strep, and all of a sudden you're going to the ER. And now you're leaving the ER because you now have a, essentially a leukemia diagnosis. Absolutely. What do you remember about going from the ER to, to the oncology unit? Do you remember the stress of 
not being at work, of not being, what, what were, I guess, some of the burdens? Was it more about just, you were focused on your kid? Okay, I've got to take care of all these things at work, and now I've got to get a, some of those thoughts of what was going through your head as y'all transitioned up there. Some of the main things, I guess, that transpired was one, um, once we were told, gosh, somewhere mid-afternoon, probably two-ish, three-ish, that it happened. I mean, at that point, like, the whole, like, Charlie Brown, you know, like, the teacher talking in gray, like, didn't fully understand, you know, what had, you know, what, what exactly was happening. Um, our oldest son was at school that day and, and Connor was supposed to be, we thought he would, well, we didn't think he'd be joining him at school that day, but, um, you know, cause he was sick. So we, we assumed strep and he wouldn't be there, but we had to, my wife, I remember had to call my mother-in-law to get her to go pick up, um, our oldest from school. And she, at that point, you know, had told them, I, mean, I just remember lots of crying, you know, my end, my wife's end, um, my mom was there. Uh, I don't recall if she cried, but, you know, pretty numb and just, just the whole thing was, was pretty crazy. Um, but I remember at some point the doctors coming in. Yeah, that's what it was. We get up, we wait, the nurses get us settled. I mean, I think they got like popsicles and just kind of got us checked in and we're like, we want to talk to the doctors as quick as possible. And I think the nurses like, they'll be in here shortly you know they're, they're getting all the labs and kind of getting together so they can have that initial conversation and so i'm almost certain our doctor came in um with the attending you know the person that was working the floor that night and they told us that you know that in fact it was almost certainly going to be a leukemia diagnosis um he told us at that point that he didn't know how long we would be in the hospital he said his guess was you know between five five weeks to five months i'm sorry five days to five months so we were told that there was a that we were going to for sure be in the hospital probably five days and it could be up to five months that you know he explained that it was leukemia and he explained that there's now two different types of leukemia so we for sure know by the counts you know minus just something being egregiously wrong which he's like i don't i unfortunately don't expect that but it's going to be a leukemia diagnosis he's like i feel it's going to be all which is ultimately where we were he's like but there is a chance it's aml he's like if it's all you're probably closer to that five days initial in the hospital get him stabilized get his port started or get his port placed which is a medical device that goes under the skin in the chest area um, you know, cause we, and then he's like, we'll get that scheduled in the next day or two to get that in place. You know, he's going to have the port for two, two and a half to three and a half years. Um, you know, that's where he's going to get all of his treatment from. And then he said, once we get the port in, in, installed, you know, that we will immediately start chemo. And then he said that too, there might be some complications of when we can get the port installed. And if it delays, you know, for a few days because of surgery and such, then they will place basically a temporary something, you know, via the IV or there's other type of IV type devices that could do to do chemo, but then ultimately long-term will end up at the port. And so he explained that. And then he explained that oh, hopefully in the next 48 hours, they would complete the testing to know if it was ALL versus the AML. And then at that point, you know, he explained kind of the prognosis and he's like, I think this is ALL. I still to this day don't recall why they thought that. I don't know if they just thought that because statistical probability said it was going to be ALL. I think like um, one fourth of all pediatric um, childhood cancer diagnoses are ALL and then everything else gets a lot more drastically less common. And so I don't know if we were acting on that assumption or if he saw a characteristic 
that made him believe that it was AOL. And then once we talked about, you know, what it could be LL versus AML, then I remember him talking about the statistical, you know, probabilities. And he told me that ALL has, you know, a very favorable long-term, you know, for kids, you know, especially in his risk, um, risk stratification, meaning age and, and type and when you catch it. And I remember his numbers while they were high and obviously pointed to leukemia, they were like astronomically high, like a lot of kids um, do. Because um, fortunately, I think they, I think we caught it very early and the doctors believe that, whereas many times these kids will get cycled through their pediatricians and ERs for weeks, if not even up to a month or so, and they get sicker and sicker, you know, and things like that, their numbers get higher and then it's harder to pull back. And so again, we think, we thought we caught it quickly, but then he starts talking about the AML statistics, you know, whereas Connor's long-term survivorship and long-terms in a five year um, is where they, um, they, they calculate it for AML, it was about a 50-50, 60-40. So it was, you know, much more grim prognosis, you know, which is obviously scary. And then the thoughts of being in the hospital from five weeks to, you know, five, I'm sorry, five days to five months, you know, just sounded, you know, grueling. And I mean, it, and it happens to, to families all the time. So I've heard the stories, but it was just kind of mind blowing. And so we get that. We understand we're going to be there for five days. We know we don't know what what's really ahead we know we have more um testing coming and just we're just mentally like just spent and exhausted the room that we're in is is less than the size of a bedroom you know and so we're starting to look around thinking that you know there's three of us because my mom decided she's going to stay so we can start getting notes and we're going to stay so we had cots and i think this pullout bed i slept with connor and we were just crammed in there um, at that point, you know, my mother-in-law has our oldest, so she's just holding on to him. Uh, you know, we were afraid to really tell him much because we don't know yet, and he's only six. Um, and at that point, um, I call my best friend, and I have him just, you know, come pick me up at the hospital so I could pack because we literally showed up with a few snacks and a blanket for Connor and, you know, thought we were going home that day. And, you know, next thing you know, I'm at home packing to stay in the hospital indefinitely. So I called my wife on Facebook. FaceTime, you know, because I, I couldn't drive. So my friend came and picked me up and he drove me to the house and I was like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to pack. And so fortunately I packed my stuff and then we just did it on FaceTime. I remember being in my house and uh, just just not figuring it out. I remember I kind of trashed the house just trying to get stuff together. And, you know, just like, man, this is just such a mess. And, you know, I think we were in the middle of laundry and our house already looked kind of like wrecked. And, you know, we were planning on doing all that. And so remember at some point, you know, in the following days, my neighbor had come over and she'd clean the whole house up and just, just straighten everything up, you know, in the big tornado wreck that I'd left it and just all that. And so then we showed up to the hospital later that night, you know, my friend dropped me off and we just kind of hung out. And then that next morning, about five in the morning, um, the same doctors, I think came around and woke us up. I don't think I really slept at all that night much. Um, and he came in and he told us, I guess I'm almost certain that morning is when he told us that it was ALL. And so he told us that, you know, it was the better, definitely the better prognosis, the more common. Most kids do okay from it. I also remember that morning that he came in and I, it was probably eight to 10 other people were with him in the white coats. Um, OU's a teaching hospital where Connor was, was, uh, was being treated at. And so he brought everyone in and he's like, people don't always have to be there. But we're like, well, it's teaching hospital, you know, one, we need, we kind of do our part, train the next doctors. And then two, just, you know, 
we figured with eight people, you know, all looking at, at his um, records that, you know, that, that you'd have eight smart people or eight, eight, eight minds, you know, looking at it versus one. And so we kind of, you know, let that happen and, and just, and then to just not knowing, you know, who was who or who was what or who was the right person and all that, um, you know, didn't know. Dr. Pocolo, you know, who you talked to yesterday, you know, was the one talking to us. And um, he, you know, he, he was he was confident in all that. I don't remember much about the conversation. It got super technical. My mom's asking a million questions with her medical background. You know, my wife's asking questions. I ask questions, you know, for a living, you know, in the technology space. So I just tried to ask intelligent questions. I don't really remember much of it. What I do remember, and this is why I'm so glad that Dr. Buckle likes me, you know, and all that is um, all I all I remembered at that point was I tried to ask an intelligent question because Dr. Pokolo reemphasized that he was our doctor, and um, you know, and that all, all that, and I, I all I remember is like saying something along the lines of you know, no offense, you know, I, I'm sure you're great and all that. He's like, but I didn't really pick you, you know, you've just kind of you know been assigned to us. I was like. Um, I told him, I was like, I'm not sure we're going to, we're going to stay here yet or something along those lines. And he's like, what do you mean? And I was like, and, and this is just like the two pieces of knowledge I think I had, you know, is, um, I was like, well, we're probably going to maybe look at like MD Anderson or St. Jude's, you know, cause, and that's all I'd known from like commercials and stuff. I was like, we probably want a second opinion, but you know, we're obviously here to listen, you know, but you know, we're not, we know we're here in Oklahoma, not, you know, one of the more world renowned, like, um, medical places. You know, so like, you know, I don't know you or your credentials and, you know, we want to, you know, get the best of the best. You know, my family's, you know, we're not rich by any means, but, you know, we, you know, I'm sure we could have figured out money, you know, and all that to do that. And then that's where he kind of like, you know, very calmly, you know, even, and I think we were respectable, but who knows how the conversation really went. You know, we're sitting here questioning his um, abilities at the hospital's abilities, you know, why here and basically just challenging him to sell us. And he's, he explains how the protocols work. He explained how MD Anderson's an adult hospital. And so he didn't think that they'd be treating us. And he explained how it's actually good news that St. Jude's probably wouldn't accept us because we were a textbook, very standard, you know, treatment plan at that point. And he's like, so believe it or not, this is good news. And then he went on to explain how um, childhood cancer is treated throughout, um, that, that there's a the children's oncology group or COG they actually set these standards and the protocols and that all these organizations and children's hospitals throughout um, throughout the United States work through this one group so that the scientists and the researchers and the doctors all knowledge share because of how um, rare that childhood cancer you know is in comparison to like adult cancer that um, that they had to pull the research that you know and that all kids for the most part take the same level of treatment in protocols and that's where they educated us. And so then at that point, we were told that, you know, they explained the protocol the first time we were told it was going to be three and a half years of treatment and that it was going to be in multiple years of years and multiple phases and that the uh, first six months was going to be extremely intense. At that point, he told us too that later that day we were going to get the port installed and that we would begin, I think, the uh, first two rounds of chemo uh, on that day. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Wow. I mean, that's a, that's a lot within a 24 hour period. I mean, it, it sounds oh, like, absolutely. so as far as things at home, it sounds like you had the great supports with your mother-in-law keeping your oldest. And now you guys were able to focus on Connor for a little bit. And how long did he end up staying in the hospital that for that first, was it just the five days as predicted? Or yeah, yeah. it was, 
It was exactly the uh, the five days. So we did um, just for some some general stats for us. So and, and we did um, we did his treatment ended up being seven hundred ninety four days total. And, and we'll kind of get to the because uh, that's shorter than the three and a half years that I spoke to. But um, for seven hundred ninety four days total, so a little bit over you know two years and three months. Um, he did. We had six ER visits over the ten. Uh, sorry, over the little over almost two and a half years. We had 10 ER visits, those, I'm sorry, six ER visits that counted as 10 total days in the hospital. So the first five days is the, um, is, is, you know, half of our stay. And then two weeks later, we ended up back in the hospital after um, the first five days for a very simple adenovirus, which is, you know, the rhinovirus or something like that. Very similar, usually a runny nose or all that, but we just blasted him with tons of chemo. And so we got another, I think, one day there and then over the course of the next you know two and a half years we had the other four er visits which um, was another four days you know mainly for observation and, and things like that connor did um 58 rounds of chemo um via his, his spine or via his port so with all they they primarily give him chemo in his port but then also um by the nature of how it could it could spread is the uh, central nervous system via the spine and the uh, spinal fluid, you know, if, if not treated, could spread, you know, up into the uh, the brain and things like that. And so we would do spinal taps as well, where they would inject um, chemo in, in his spinal column to basically protect it from moving to his brain and, and kind of uh, metastasizing in that way. And so they would also check every time to make sure there was no leukemia cells in there. They also did full DNA profiles and stuff just to make sure that there weren't unfavorable genetic traits and then they would do um, bone marrow biopsies from his hip where that was the best way they could do that. And so um, they, I think they took it at day one, day eight and day 28. And then we were told that for that first month, they, they also hit him with um, massive amounts of steroids. So we did a crazy amounts of steroids where during that first um, month, Connor gained 28% of his body weight um, in those final two weeks, which I believe was like, I think 10, 11 pounds, it, but it would have been like me, it would have been like me gaining um, like 50 pounds in two weeks, you know, it, it was that crazy, and, and he got the full like roid rage from the steroids, and he ate constantly like four plates of food, we went to Chick-fil-A every day, um, and then on, on Saturdays, we'd get a double order, because they were closed on Sundays, he would eat 30 nuggets every day, he would drink a gallon at least of milk, he would drink eat like full heads of broccoli so at least there's a few healthy foods in there uh french fries i mean you name it like my mom moved in with us during that time once we got home and really became like a short order cook because she uh she, she took off work and ultimately ended up retiring she was a few months away anyways from retiring and so did that but that that was the first thing um also you know you, you asked about um you know what we did you know with that so my mother-in-law kept Gavin our oldest for the first week um I, I believe she got him in the school every day if I remember right yeah maybe not the the next day but did that um at I think day three or day four Gavin came up to the hospital you know once things had stabilized once Connor got his um port installed he came in to see him I think on our day four or five Gavin and one of his other cousins actually we had a little sleepover in the hospital you know, just to kind of get him immersed, you know, to the life that, you know, he would also be part of. 
Um, the child life specialist came in at one point to explain it to him because that was one of our biggest concerns is how we were going to explain this to Gavin because he was only six. And so they played, they did this really cool like example where they use like Cairo syrup, uh, big and small marshmallows, red hots. And they really explained it to um, Gavin, you know, with the uh, big marshmallows being Connors where they were growing out of control and the small ones and the differences. And it's actually probably where my wife and I first really learned, you know, in a, in a layman's terms, what was going on um, and all that. And so like, that was one of the big things that we, um, at one point we did the uh, Facebook announcement just because, you know, the word was starting to get out to our friends and family and people were trying to figure out how to reach out. And that was one of the pieces of advice that we got on we got pretty early is just figure out a, a mode or a way to communicate with people in mass because otherwise, you know, that's all I was going to do via text. And, you know, I didn't have the emotional um, ability to really talk to anybody hardly and let alone try to, you know, field 200 texts a day from, you know, concerned people and such. I also remember just texting my boss that night of, you know, just talk about, you know, getting people prepared. And um, I told my boss that, you know, I don't know if or when I'm coming back, you know, and this is my situation. I worked at a company at the time um, that was having just round after round of layoffs too. So um, I was afraid that I was going to, you know, that, you know, maybe even lose my job in the midst of treatment. Um, ultimately I did not, but uh, so yeah, I just, I, my wife did the same thing with her job. Um, we just both told our jobs. We didn't know if and when we were coming back. We didn't even know how it was going to work. You know, we just, we just had bigger issues to deal with. And so we did that. Both of us ended up getting on leave. Fortunately, our, our companies both had good um, leave policies and programs in place where we both were, we were off um, work six weeks for me and eight weeks for my wife, respectively. And fortunately for us, we got the majority of our salaries taken care of. Both of our works did, you know, phenomenal jobs and were really supportive. You know, they did, you know, various things, you know, take care of our family. Um, my job had, you know, a big, like, uh, like there's a donation drive and auctions and they did some really cool stuff. So, you know, when I got back to work, you know, they, they, you know, they even had, you know, a check for us and they did, they did like a big gift basket and were super supportive. And then what was crazy is then two weeks, I'm sorry, two days, three days after I got back to work, um, you know, they, again, I was in a layoff culture, three of the people on my team that did all the work I was gone. I get back two or three days later and then they were laid off just because of where our, our work was. I remember even talking to my boss, telling him that I did not feel right about the three of them going. Um, because I thought, you know, that maybe it should have been me. And I hope that I wasn't held, you know, there just because of my son being sick. I was like, well, I need this job and I'm probably pretty crazy to even question this or ask for this, you know, I still didn't feel right about it. And they told me that, you know, that it was even considered that I would go and that, you know, my son being sick wasn't, you know, why I kept my job. It was just, you know, just how it was. And so, you know, so then I, I had, you know, that, that kind of thing, you know, I had my sick son, I was back at work, but I told my boss too, I was like, you know, I, I think I'm back today, but in all actuality, you know, if, if something goes off and off track again, or, something's not working, then, you know, I could disappear again. And so I even, you know, gave my boss a chance to, to reevaluate if I should have been on that list and, and trade out those people. But, you know, it was, I guess, fortunate for me in that scenario that it, you know, I did keep my job, you know, during that time. That's, that's a lot of pressure right there I mean, with possible layoffs and then your son with his diagnosis. And um, 
as a parent to three children myself, I would like you to kind of talk about having a three-year-old that has this diagnosis. And then for the next six months, you're having to do those procedures. You're having to do those, um, the chemo through the port. You're having to do the spinal taps. The, the, how did he handle that? You know, and then how did you handle that as a parent? Because, you know, you watch your kids go through some of these things and it's like, I wish I could do that for you. Um, so I'm, I'm curious if you could kind of describe maybe his demeanor and how he was able to get the strength to be able to do it from week to week to week. Um, and then you as a parent, how you psychologically handled that pressure to continue on with those treatments. So one, you know, lots of people, you know, you'll, you'll hear this or, you know, when you talk to their parents or et cetera, you know, one thing that, you know, is always comes in and, and people always tell, you know, parents or families in our situation, it's kind of the common tagline is you're so strong. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it. And it's one of those things you really don't. <laughs> it's not that we are any stronger than anyone else and nothing changed, you know, but from the, t the minute before to the minute after the diagnosis. It's just one of those things that you just do. Um, man, those first six weeks, especially, you know, there's no magic to it. You just, it's one foot in front of the other. It's one second at a time. Um, you just kind of get there. I mean, you know, we, fortunately, there's three of us between my wife, myself, my mom, and that was just the direct people that were there, you know, every second of the day. We had a massive um, support network. I mean, we had all of our friends, you know, came out big. I mean, how we had more food than you could imagine for months. You know, people really helped there. Various organizations in the community showed up, did different things from financial support to all that. So, you know, from that part, we, you know, our our main resources were, uh, you know, were handled or taken care of. You know, our financial thing was situated um, early on before we knew our, our work insurance policies and stuff would kick in. You know, we had other things, you know, we had a little bit of savings in place, so we knew it would somehow work out. And then we had other, you know, means that, you know, we could, we could do. So we, we figured somehow that would, well, would take care of each, take care of itself. And then, you know, as the insurance policies and things started getting unstuck, we got through the, them, those, those parts. So that was really fortunate. And again, a, a big testament to, you know, the network we had, the people in place, the friends, the community, you know, work things. So, you know, we were very fortunate in that aspect because, you know, that's a small part of it. Um, but, you know, without the financial resources, without the time, I mean, this story, you know, what I'll talk about just gets drastically worse, you know, for those families. So fortunately, we checked that. Then the next was really just trying to get medicines in place. That was, I mean, that was awful. One, um, that first month, um, we're, we're giving all these steroids. So now we don't even about a week or two in, don't recognize our kid anymore. He's all um, sort of geeked out, for lack of better words, on the steroids. Yeah, you can't really um, rationalize or reason with him. He's never taken um, lots of oral meds. So on top of the, uh, I think, 58, round, yeah, 58 rounds of chemo I mentioned that are done you know, intravenously, either via his port or through, through his spine, we did dozens of pills each day from oral chemos to multiple different types to supporting uh, anti-nausea drugs, to um, antibiotics, to not have pneumonia, to the steroids, to medicines to keep the steroids from tearing up the stomach. And then there was medicines to prevent the negative side effects of chemo, uh, depending on the type of chemo, depending on the type of medicine, to basically 
take care of the the negative pieces um the anti-nausea was huge getting to the steroids like i said we truly just didn't didn't have have full cooperation with him i mean he was kind of going like steroid crazy in his own head didn't have any idea what was going on he gained all that weight um his heart was going crazy because he gained you know like i said 28 pounds of or 28 percent of his body weight which was i think like 10 or 12 pounds at the time his voice changed he was irrational um put it in perspective you know he was diagnosed on december 11th 14 days later was christmas between the community and you know between us we rolled out christmas you know filled up half our living room he didn't he didn't even care like two weeks in could not care less about christmas didn't want to open up a present all he wanted to do was eat again you know and so that was just trying to get him to take the meds then he's on chemo so he's throwing up a lot and so every time he threw up we had to re-give him medicine so then we had this whole drawn out um, process where we would give one medicine we'd wait 30 minutes and if it went down then we could give the others we had a whole prioritization lesson so that was nuts we also had to teach a three-year-old how to take medicine you know he wasn't ready to swallow pills so then we had to crush this medicine and put it into these um like syrups and then again we're crushing a toxic you know med so we're trying to you know keep ourselves safe and trying to do that and again every time he threw up we had the time we had to kind of like determine did he get enough of the dose because it was critical especially early on to get the proper chemo in place so that we could you know squash that so that was a lot of it i'd say the first six weeks too it was really just getting our own bearings um getting that comprehension of what's going on learn how to do this treatment our our family relied heavily on structure you know my wife and i both worked eight to five jobs and so you know we, we had child care in place and so we worked a very standard you know eight to five monday through friday you know daycare kind of thing like that and now all structure was off everyone's at home we're still trying to keep our oldest in school he's trying to figure it out you know he's only six he's trying to figure out why all the attention shifted away from him because he's still six and so just kind of balance that um obviously at this point you know six weeks in you know we've hardly slept you know we've worried um you know our relationship's not getting any stronger at this point because we've had to totally put that you know sweep that you know or put that to the end of the line sweep you know that under the rug you know so just things are chippy we've got this you know sick kid at home no one's sleeping our mom's living with us my mom's amazing but you know we never she's much more amazing at her own house or you know across town you know than our own house um you know but it, again the, the help was amazing um he's eating so much and drinking so much you know we can't keep him in clothes you know and then if he has you know he, um we reverted back we just potty trained ended up in diapers again because there was so much going on and he's it, it, getting rid of so much chemo you know by taking all the liquids you know you couldn't you had to be very vigilant on diaper changes because it could you know come through through a journey so we didn't want that on his legs because that's, that's pretty nasty stuff and so it was it was wild i mean wild wild those first six weeks like i don't know um i mean i'm sure we won all that food showed up um it's highly stressful situation so that's probably where the stress eating began um for me i mean and i'm have light anxiety anyways um i mean this just took it quadruple fold you know so my anxiety is in full force you know so this so that's starting to set in and then too i mean we have a pretty favorable prognosis but i mean there's a lot of really ugly days really talking through the what ifs i mean you know there's a chance i mean he they would 
he definitely had we not have got him in the ER. I mean, could have definitely been on the verge of, you know, having a major health situation up until dying, you know, if it would have got out of control. So, you know, just coming to the, to the, the conclusion and coming to the grips of that, um, that, you know, he very well could have died, you know, through this. And we were by far out of the woods, you know, you know, because the, the worst was just getting started. You know, the first month is so intense too with the steroids and all the drugs to get him into, um, into remission. So that's one thing too that's in, interesting and unique with ALL leukemia is with those risk profiles, you know, they do all these testing and all that. And over the days you get more and more of a complete picture with new news. Unfortunately, we kept getting more favorable information, but you just keep waiting as well. So, you know, like the first was, okay, we, you know, when we were told five days to five months in the hospital, that was the determination of, is it going to be AML versus ALL? And so we find out ALL. So it's a lot more treatable. And then next is, I think we had a day eight where they checked his blood, you know, levels to see how bad they were to figure out if we were a low, medium or high risk. And we come back at medium risk, which is where almost everyone is. And so that was good news. And then I think at day 21 or day 28, they do another uh, bone marrow biopsy. And then that is if you don't end up in remission for the first 28 days where they kind of squash it with all the chemo and all the treatment, then you also, you know, become in a high risk and it's much harder to treat. And so I think from that five days between the time they took that test to that, you know, you're waiting on pins and needles there because if you get out uh, unfavorable news in this situation or that time, then it drastically takes, you know, that high 90% or greater long-term survival, you know, starts to drastically drop. And so, you know, you just had all these phase gates. And so it took about a month to get the full information that at least told us that, okay, this is more treatable than most. Um, you know, we have a good chance, but yet we also knew of people that had lost their kids. So this exact same, very treatable situation. And so, you know, it's like, well, you're betting on, you know, 90%. I mean, 10% is not a bad odds on many things, but when it's a life or death for your kid, 10% is a awful number. I mean, as I uh, have moved forward, I mean, 1% or half a percent or any percent, you know, when it's a life or death, you know, it's pretty, pretty stressful. So, you know, that was one of those things too, is on top of the first month, on top of the steroids, on top of trying to teach a three-year-old how to do um, all the treatment and stuff. You're also waiting on various pieces of information that's going to, you know, dictate what's going to happen, you know, for the next uh, many years. And again, too, ALL was also one of the longest treatment protocols, if not the longest, you know, for all, all the uh, kids. And so it just seems so daunting as well, because initially we were told it was going to take three and a half years because at that time, two boys with ALL were treated an extra year compared to girls because there was a slight chance of a testi testicular um, relapse. And so the protocol was there, you know, and so we went into this, with three and a half years, you know, in mind, and it took us probably over a year until that changed. Um, luckily, there was a lot of research that had been go going on the decade prior, and the research was starting to question if that extra year for the boys was actually doing anything different, because girls had already been doing two, two and a half years of treatment for decades, and the boys were doing the three, and people were questioning if that extra year chemo was helping or hurting or at, at best, you know, neutral. Because chemo is also one of those things where, you know, I, I truly think it saved Connor's life, but it's kind of like it's threading a needle. You know, you do too much of it and you might save their life today to cause long term problems tomorrow. You do too little of it. You know, you're, you're not going to in the end it. You know, you're, you have a higher chance of relapse, you know, and, and hopefully we did just the just right amount where, 
is, is hopefully gone yet we hopefully have you know did the minimum amount to hopefully limit or not have you know long-term you know side effects and things like that so we did we made that decision and we had to make that decision as well um again i think 12 to 18 months into treatment the doctors you know gave us the research but since we were mid mid protocol changes things don't just you know jump out of protocols and so they gave us the option and but my wife and i had to make the decision because the medical staff could advise but they couldn't do it you know because it was on us and so you know that was again a year to 18 months later and that was you know after a lot of hard hard decisions we had to make early on you know then we had to really agonize and really think about dropping your treatment you know and really think about that and really what it came down to from our wife and i is that we had to make a decision that even if the worst case scenario happened and we chose to drop the year and he had relapsed and you know he even ultimately passed that you know we could live with ourselves that we made the right decision with the information we had at that time you know doing that knowing that you know if this went the wrong way that we would be able to live with ourselves you know knowing that we made what we thought was the best decision and we were one of the first people at our clinic too that had to make that decision and that was just strictly a timing thing i think there's two or three other families that we got to meet that were also making the same decision so we kind of peer collaborated a little bit, but really it was just our decision to make, you know, no one could really make it, you know, for us. And so that was, you know, some of the things we did in that, you know, next year as well. Right. Wow. That, I mean, because ultimately the decisions you make are going to affect the future for, for him and on his behalf. So um, would you say that, that Connor was compliant with most of his treatment plan? Fortunately for us, I mean, the compliance wasn't really ever a question. I think the research drastically showed that if, um, I feel, I feel like the stats are pretty low, that if you missed, like, I think like up to like 10 doses, like you didn't like follow the procedure that you, you went from like high 90% or 90% is the overall, I think the, um, the average survival shift for all ALL. And I think that takes into account all kids like one to 17. Um, and then there's, you know, the kids over 10 and kids under one, have higher higher risks, and so it's all blended statistics because um, because there's just really not that large of a sample size. You know, uh, different research or different doctors or different people, you know, think that the the younger kids in that one to ten age, the medium or low, you know, risk profiles actually have the higher ninety percent, you know, but no one's really aggregated it or split it out by that. But um, they that that said, early on they mentioned that if you miss, you know, up to like ten doses or you know they're missed or not there that the success drastically drops from like the 90s into like the 80 percentile. So one, we didn't really see it as an option. Um, two, we knew that already, because they check your counts. Every time you go, they're checking counts. Sometimes counts drop too low. When counts drop too low, it's dangerous and you have to pause chemo. And so, you know, some of that already happened. So we just knew we had to be compliant um, with a three-year-old. I, I mean, one, we got really lucky. Um, I think that he just came along to, we figured out how to make it work. A lot of gamification, lots of toys, lots of bribing, lots of begging, lots of pleading, lots of, I mean, tears are on our end. Um, lots of redoing meds after they've been thrown up three times after. I mean, where we definitely question, I don't know if this is possible. You know, are we setting ourselves up for failure? you know, things like that. But then we're like, well, all we know is that we have to try it. We have to do our best because we can't just, you know, do it. And I mean, and it truly, I guess compliance wasn't an option because it truly was life or death. And so I don't know what, you know, we, you know, we, we, we just, we had to make it happen. I mean, sometimes, you know, early on 
he'd sit in our lap and he'd be wrapped up, you know, and we'd have to not hold him down, but I mean, we'd have to force the medicine. Fortunately, once we got off the steroids, we did them for a month. It probably took three to three weeks to get him out of his system. And then we got him back, man. That first seven weeks where he was steroid induced and raged out and he wasn't our kid. I mean, we just had to make it happen. I mean, luckily it was size and smarts, lots of bartering, begging, pleading, um, lots of candy with the, I mean, with, with the medicines, I mean, you name it, you know, we just had to do, get very creative and it worked. Um, so yeah, the compliance part was always there. Um, we knew once we got, you know, going, once we got past that first month, it got better. Um, you know, it's six, the first six months is really bad in, in the ALL treatment. First month is, I mean, they practically, between what the leukemia is trying to do to bring your kid child closer to death and then with the, the medicine because they crashed them so hard and they hit them so hard. I mean, the steroids, I mean, you're really bringing your kid like flirting with that, that line. Um, and then like about that four to six week mark, it's like, oh, anyway, you're far from mentally prepared, but like the worst was there. And then we just kind of started you know, coming, coming back to life a little bit. We had to rebuild. We knew we had to get back to work. We, we owed it to ourselves. We owed it to Connor. You know, I mean, we were still in that, you know, what if, you know, what if this doesn't end favorably? Like we weren't just going to live in this, you know, I guess miserable state or in fear. I mean, we lived in fear, but we also had to like find that balance. Cause it's like, okay, this might not end favorably. So we also have to, we have to balance living and balance the worry of this. And so we also kind of wanted to make sure that if this is it for him, you know, that this doesn't end up favorably, that we, at least as a family, we make our memories and we do things and, and all that. And so we tried to, obviously with, with in the gray area many times with the doctor's protection, um, you know, or, or suggestions on how to protect, and you know, we were doing masks in sanitizers and all this before COVID was COVID, you know, we were, you know, it, it was really our training ground for two and a half years, um, all that. And so, you know, we, we just, we, I don't know, somehow, some way worked through it. Once he got up the steroids, he came back to life. Um, the good thing is Connor loves attention. He was three, two, everything was all focused around him. People started doing cool stuff, started doing cool events for us. Cards would show up, all kinds of just cool little things. And Connor started eating that up. Um, and so the attention started getting, and he realized that he could um, you know, get the attention out of this. And so we really harnessed that since he was three kids are pretty, you know, young kids are easy to game. Whereas if you talk to any older kids, you know, any families with older kids, you can't game them, you know, like teenagers, this just sucks, like all the way around, at least for Connor, little trinkets, little toys, little snacks. The hospital had a um, toy closet. And so anytime he had to have, treatment which that first month was always he got new toys he'd bring his brother you know they let him just do silly stuff like riding on his iv pole to the baseball players coming through to football players um you know they already started talking about us early on about a make a wish trip and so connor really just started eating up the attention we really started gaming it we really took advantage of the culture child life and we just started making it a big deal uh, my mom would always pack little goodie bags so every time he had treatment him and his brother got little goodie bags, had little snacks or little toys or Lego figures. Um, the therapy dogs would start coming around. And so about two, two months in, and then once the steroids were gone, 
Um, he wasn't being separated from his food because that was we had a major meltdown day 28 um, when we were trying to find out if he was still in remission or not because he hadn't eaten um, because of the steroids. And then the, the thing was delayed and he just melted down to the lobby where all these other families are there. You know, and obviously the hospital's like, this doesn't look good for all these other kids. And we're like, hey, I don't know what you want, man. He, he wants his food. He's probably legally, clinically insane with all these steroids. Like, you know, get us back there. Let's do this, you know, because he wants to eat, you know, and stuff like that. But so just, you know, things like that. But, you know, once we got through the worst, then the game gamification kind of took in the culture, the, the, the toys, the just the, the, the staff being nice and doing all that stuff. That really helped. And then it just. The next six months, I mean, it just got better and better. Um, we Again, we chose, I think, not to let it victimize us completely. I mean, that sounds so much easier said than done. And we were very fortunate that we had definitely probably lesser of a fight than a lot of the peers. Like I said, our stats of 10 days in the hospital and 60 ER visits, you know, that we dropped the year of, of treatment, which most people now drop that. But are not characteristic. Probably uh, most families had more ER visits, definitely had more hospital stays and things like that. And so we also, you know, got, got lucky in some, some aspects um, and things like that. So talk to me a little bit about the, the things that, you know, I who have not experienced it typically um, hear about like the hair loss. And then when you, when the medicine takes your immune system so low that you can't really do anything, how was your life altered by some of those kind of things? I know you said you tried to, you know, stay in the game and, you know, tried to live life and make the memories and all of that just in case. But um, I'm curious how things were altered as a result. And, and did Gavin see those kind of things as far as from a brother's standpoint? Yeah, so um, no, definitely we got altered. So again, every week to month, because at first you go every week, well, I guess at first you go every two, two, twice a week, then once a week, then every two weeks, and then you get to the month phase. And at that point, every time you're taking blood work and blood work dictate, dictated where you were at. If you were below 750 on the ANC, which is kind of the overall, you know, grouped count. And that, that basically dictated if we were above 750, then we could proceed with caution. I mean, hand sanitizers, hand washing, masks, if, if it was like flu seasons and such, you know, just became part of it. You know, fortunately people around us were very respectful, you know, so if we had play dates or things with people, people knew like if they even had a sniffle or, I mean, almost woke up with a hangnail, like people just didn't come around because I mean, and, I, and a lot of respect people, people didn't want to be that person that would get him sick or, you know, would cause a problem. And so we limited some, but like, fortunately people were really good about it and just stayed away. Um, we, we did enroll or de-enroll Connor from a school. He was in just like a mother's day out, you know, pre-K three, um, you know, when he was diagnosed, we, we pulled him out of school, but by the following uh, let's see, so that was December. By that following September, we put him back in pre-K. I mean, with a port, you know, some he missed some school for doctor's appointments. If it got to be flu season and we heard, started hearing that things were in the school, we'd pull him out. Fortunately, it was a, a, a small private school at the time. So, you know, luckily the numbers weren't like a bigger school district, you know, like we are now. And so we navigated that. Fortunately, his numbers stayed pretty high um, and we just, there's a lot of just some some just faith that it would work out and 
like I said, we, we lived in some gray areas. Um, you know, a lot of other peer families chose to not put their kids back in school and things like that, you know, but, and it was just, you truly had to do what worked best for you and what was right for you and things like that. Um, so that was part of it for Gavin. Um, you know, we, we had to, uh, we had to be very attentive to that. You know, Gavin one is a great big brother was very concerned about his brother. And so that Gavin really just became like a model kid and just assimilated and kind of fell into line and really he, he grew up years. Gavin was always kind of a little bit more mature for his age and probably added five years of maturity on him. He just realized that he was sometimes second, you know, that we had to all hands on deck to get his brother, you know, well. And then fortunately too, Connor was three. And so like throughout this journey too, people would do nice things for our family that Connor was even almost too young for at times. Like I think early on, someone donated um tickets to like the marvel comics like action figures thing at the chesapeake arena and i think the intent was for it to be for connor connor was too young too steroided out we didn't feel safe about taking him and so my wife was able to take him you know like connor's make-a-wish trip was a literally almost a year or i think it was a year we went on a year we started the trip and ended it the day a year after he was diagnosed and so a year later Connor was still only four at that time, and so he could ride some of the rides, but Gavin was starting to get tall enough and into bigger roller coasters, and so things like that were, um, you know, he, he got integrated there, and, and luckily when people would bring, like, over, like, like, goodie bags or little snack things or, you know, things like that, either they would think about Gavin and they would bring stuff, or we would just, because so much stuff came in, and, you know, we were very fortunate, and people did were really good to us sometimes we would just divide stuff or sometimes we would augment things and you know we would add to it or do special things with gavin um we were also very intentional because early on i mean we we felt we were you know just losing control uh, in, in many ways or and i say losing control just losing control of balance you know we were always out of balance it felt like especially once we started getting back to work it's you know because work you know was great to us and our bosses were really supportive and they cared but at the end of the day work is still work and it had to be on. And also we didn't want to be, we, I mean, we didn't want to use this as like that token or to call it or to get the special attention, but you know, we were very trying to be mindful because we also wanted to be as normal as possible. And so um, we just, we try to balance it. it. It always felt like we were out of balance, you know, and again, like if we were out of balance with our relationship or we had to spend a lot of time with, with Connor, you know, cause it was a, a trying season then we'd be out of balance with Gavin. And, and luckily it seemed like too, because there's the three of us, because again, my mom lived with us for two months and then my mom ended up retiring and just basically became almost like our nanny, personal assistant. She came to the appointments. She was part of our, our success. She was our medical tribunal. On top of that, we have my wife's mom who was also instrumental. So between both moms, I mean, we were just taken care of on all aspects. Um, and so I think we got Gavin balanced, but then when we were out of balance, we try to catch up. We threw therapy in the mix. You know, we we had therapy through the um, hospitals while they did a great job and we could have pursued that further. We also chose to do therapy outside. Um, fortunately, in this situation, we pretty much had all-inclusive health care because we hit our deductible in like seven seconds, you know, every year, you know, with the treatment and, and things like that. So we just, we were able to take advantage of that. And while we could have done therapy more at the hospital, it was nice to not do things at that hospital. Like that hospital, while it was amazing in the culture, it was, 
it still just reminded you where it was. And so we would do things like that away. And so I think at points in our therapy, we would have the, the therapist meet with just Gavin and, you know, and she would try to help like through play therapy and figure out and help us identify, you know, where he was struggling. And then we would have him under control and like, you know, lots of people's friends were amazing. And so Gavin got extra sleepovers with friends and did cool stuff. Then we realized like our relationship would be slipping. And so then my wife and I would do therapy or just one of us would be struggling. And so our therapist would just see me or my wife or Connor was going through transitions because he's three years old too. He's trying to go through all those stages of adolescence and, and all that. And uh, so then she would see him and it was just, that was another, what I tell people too, and especially new families is, is to try to take care of yourself. Um, summer too, about the six month mark or so. Yeah. That summer I'd gained a lot of weight from just eating out and being stressed out and eating too much. I realized like I had to start getting, you know, my life back together. And so we're trying to get, you know, exercise back into the mix. Um, one really just to, to head off my anxiety, you know, and to hopefully get, cause I ended up on, you know, antidepressants and the, you know, various drugs to help get through that season because it was just too much. And, and while they did the job, I didn't like how they made me feel. I'd always managed it with, you know, balance exercise, you know, therapy and things like that. But, you know, it was just obviously way too much. And so I did that. And so I was trying to get back out, out off of those, you know, long-term, which it took quite some time. And so then, you know, I tried to get the exercise going back on just to be able to balance and, and things like that. And so that was another big success was the therapy and then trying to get back into uh, exercise and things like that. And then, um, like I said, after that, the first six months were extremely tough, you know, between the initial treatment and, and then you do all these various inductions and delayed intensifications. And it's really just fancy ways of them saying that they come at you with every combination of chemo possible. Um, and they all, they all have their own, you know, side effects and, and extra medicines to go through to minimize the effects of those and to get you to that point. Um, about five months in the culmination of it all kind of really hit, hit Connor. I think our third, um, ER visit came, he had just worn down from chemo after chemo and his hair had, had made to, you mentioned the hair earlier It had held, it had gotten drastically thin in that first month, which Connor didn't have amazing hair to begin with. Um, you know, probably from my side or whatever. And, um, that came and then it just, it, it thinned drastically. And then for a while we thought he, he was going to hold it. And so we had just really tight, um, you know, very close haircuts and all that. And then that, that five month that ER visit, he just got sick, got worn down. And we were in the ER. I remember him laying on the bed and like, he, he laid there for like 30 minutes and like just a whole like ring, probably like a six inch diameter of where he was laying, his hair was gone. And then by the end of that afternoon, or evening by the time we were getting admitted that night, like it was just, I could run my hair through it and just grab like handfuls. And so it pretty much had all fallen out. And then the next day, you know, when we got released, um, we buzzed it, you know, about six months in. And so he went and finished that part up. And then that was probably in May when that happened. And then went towards the end of, all the way through summer with pretty much no hair, you know, so he was, he didn't have hair for about two to three months. Fortunately, again, with us, you know, it was a lot easier for us than probably most families. One, he's a boy, so boys, I can't be near as tragic, I'm sure, as like uh, little girls, you know, because, you know, boys have shorter, you know, 
you know, hair to, you know, me, I don't have hair, um, you know, for those that are just listening to the podcast, you know, I, I haven't had hair um, genetics for some time. And so Connor already had me, you know, with a shaved head or, or bald head. And so when we had to shave him, you know, I was able to, you know, he thought it was cool because he was like me, you know, like his dad. We took some, we did a really cool photo session where our photographer did like copy and paste, you know, with us together. And so again, like we just did all these little things to like own it and like tried to normalize very unnormal things like that. And so I think that helped a lot um, as well, just, you know, with, with that for me, whereas a lot of parents, you know, don't you know have that advantage. You know, lots of uh, families do like head shaving parties where mom or dad or both would do it. You know, my wife's like, man, I'll do it if I need to, but I think you have this one under control. So, so, so that, that, that definitely helped, um, with, with that aspect. And, uh, again, really just the culture and what people did for us. Like I said, by that summer, we tried to get back to normal from parks to little play dates. I mean, we just really, you know, we got fortunate too, that, you know, his numbers are pretty good and then his, his attitude was good and he just loved the attention. So, you know, it really helped. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405 two seven one five zero seven two